Hey everyone, this is the Never Heard of a Podcast. I'm Sean Harwell. This is the show where we talk about the movies that have fallen through our cracks. Also got a co-host for you today. Thank goodness. Craig Moorhead, how the heck are you? Please say hello to the children. Uh, good evening, children. I'm doing great. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing okay. I'm recovering from uh, my experience in Atlanta this weekend. Mm. I think they're having their pollen season, right? Which is just an entire season unto itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was thick. It was uh, impactful upon the back of my throat Ooh. and my sinuses. Yeah. And so I sound a little, little funky today. I think still. Well, you've always sounded pretty funky to me, Sean. Hey, I can live with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you like to tell the people where they can find us online, and then we'll start talking about movies? Sure. Well, we have a website, neverheardpodcast.com. And right there, you could stop right there if you wanted to. Yeah, you've got uh, all of our episodes. You've got uh, a little blog post for all the full-length episodes that we've done. But you can also find us on Facebook, on uh, Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, And you can find the podcast itself on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Anywhere you can leave a review or stars, or maybe there's a thumbs up situation, whatever it is, please do that for us if you would, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, because we take no payment for that. We actually do this all for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, all we ask is your undying uh, adoration. And a little bit of blood. Just like a pinprick, and just yeah. send that to us. Yeah, we're like a lab. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna, we're like 23 and me, but a little less... Like 17 and me. Let's say, yeah, let's knock that down a little bit. We don't know what we're going to do with your blood yet. We just, we want to have it. Just stockpiling (laughs) at this point. Um, Hey, Craig. Yeah. uh, If they haven't subscribed yet, you should do so. I think that's the easiest way, obviously, to keep up with that is a great idea. And uh, you know what I'm going to do? What's that? I'm going to plug my letterboxd page because mm. i've been using that a lot more lately although i didn't log the last movie I did. i'm not doing a ton of reviews mm-hmm. a lot of people get into it they do yeah. some end up reviews. They haven't checked out letterboxd with a d look me up i'm sean harwell on there and uh, i enjoy the site i come and go from it but i, I feel like i'm uh, sticking a little bit more like that pollen in the back of my throat you know mm, yeah yeah i like letterboxd too and and i'm i also don't get there quite enough I, every time i get there i always have like 15 movies to add but it is a great site yeah, I follow you on there, and they got apps on every platform you'd you'd want. So go look us both up, and uh, we'll be happy to say, "How you doing?" We don't like your taste. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm definitely. Uh, speaking of taste, Craig, before we jump into Compulsion from 1959 mm-hmm. that we teed up last time, hope you listened to that. You need to tell me what else you've watched since the last time we recorded anything, and it's been a while. So I'm guessing yeah. I'm guessing you might have a few for me. I sure do, Sean. I've watched The Dirt. The Motley Crue movie on Netflix. I did too. Is this the first time that's ever happened that we had? Yeah, we actually a coinciding just, movie. Yeah, yeah, especially a, a newer one. Um, you go first. Uh, I liked it better than Bohemian Rhapsody. Me too. At the same time, it's not a it's not a great movie. Some parts really work so much better than others. There, there's there's kind of this feeling as it goes along, and and maybe this is how it should be anyway. That I, I like the members of Motley Crue less and less the longer it goes on. <laughs> yeah, I think it's absolutely how it's supposed yeah. to be. <laughs> but I think that's a part of why I like it better than Bohemian Rhapsody. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I get the sense that the guys who were involved with that movie thought it was good. It was kind of a, like they, they would look like heroes 
like Motley Crue would look like heroes, you know? And and in doing so, they just said, oh, well, what makes us look like heroes is that we do all these drugs and we are so crazy and just do such obnoxious things. So you're, I feel like you're getting a really unvarnished sort of look for the most part. I think so. And if you've read that book, which I don't know if you have, no, it's a good read. However, I'm not sure you necessarily need to now. I do think they covered that book really, really well. I mean, yeah. they definitely got the general vibe of it. I remember many, many of those scenes. For the most part, I thought it was cast well. Yeah. Oh, fun fact. Rob Reiner was attached to direct The Dirt. Whoa. I don't Jeez. know if that's because of Spinal Tap. That's the only thing I can think of yeah. as far as connecting the dots. But I, I think uh, getting the guy from Jackass and Bad Grandpa was a better decision, personally. We'll never know. Yeah. But yeah, I like the movie. It, it definitely had moments that are not great, but it was a lot of fun overall and, and kind of got it kind of got that book. Yeah. A bit of a collage, though, definitely. Oh, for sure. And, and, I, and I wonder if someone who never liked Motley Crue, who never listened to Motley Crue, I, I, I wonder what they would get out of any of that. I get the sense it's done well. I mean, it definitely, it's it's popped up on social media a lot. And I don't think just from people that are my age necessarily. Interesting. It was kind of fun though. I got to say, like there's that whole sequence where they go on tour and they actually show the dates. They scroll by on screen just to show how long the tour is. I saw them twice on that tour and I was in middle school. (laughs) Uh, Once in my first concert in Charlotte was uh, Motley Crue and Warrant. Yeah. And then saw him again in Asheville, and uh, it was a blast. I don't know why my parents let me go to that, but uh, I'm glad they did. That's awesome. Anyway, next. Yeah. Uh, next is is Us, the Jordan Peele movie. Ah, you went to the theater. Yes. Uh, yes, got all gussied up in my tuxedo. <laughs> yep. And my wife and I went to see Us. This one left me a little cold, and I think that's especially disappointing just because I, I went into it with such high hopes after Get Out. Do you think your hopes... And expectations are to blame here. Per, per chance. Do you think there's a, uh, an opportunity to rewatch it and you might think differently about it or no? I'm definitely going to watch it again. You know, when months have gone by and it's come out where I can watch it here at home by myself. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to give that a go. Kind of now knowing what it is. I, I think that's a part of it. You know, just like if, if this had just been... Ah, that's the other question I've been asking myself. If this was just by somebody else and it had this is just somebody's debut movie, would I like it more? I, I honestly don't know if I would. I, I yeah. really don't. Like, there were parts that were very effective, and, and man, some of that cast is just amazing. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that left me cold on that one. And is it story stuff? Yeah, I mean, it, it's story stuff. It's rules of the universe stuff. Okay, yeah. And and sometimes it's just, oh, I've, I've seen this before stuff. Oh, interesting. And I don't feel like there's a twist on it here. Yeah. And then and that being said, there are some bits where, oh, there is a twist on this, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It was kind of a mixed bag for me. Gotcha. And then I rewatched Iron Man 3. Yep. You're going through the MCU, right? Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Going through it with the, with the boy. And uh, I, this is still probably my favorite Iron Man movie. I feel like there are a lot of people who maybe don't like it, but man, it just it just feels like it's completely off the wall <laughs> as far as one of these Marvel movies. So I kind of enjoy that for that reason. And then watched Casino Royale, gotcha. the, the James Bond movie. Yeah. And the thing I hadn't remembered about that, and especially after watching all these Marvel movies, Casino Royale, for all the action in it, it's a very locked down movie in terms of how it's shot. And that was really hmm. impressive to me. Marvel movies, everybody starts fighting, and it tends to be a lot of shaky cam, mm-hmm. and you know, you know that that whole thing like, oh, this is exciting, and usually it's really not that exciting. But 
But man, <laughs> Casino Royale is just it just feels like the director, oh shit, who was the director? Martin Campbell? It doesn't matter, right? Who who cares who did Yes, he did. Boom, you nailed it. Uh yeah, so Martin Campbell, like he knows he's done Bond before. He knows action, but it just feels like Martin Campbell is like for like for the the fight where he's uh James Bond is fighting a guy down like a stairwell. Mhm. And there's a very similar thing that happens in one of the one of the uh, Captain America movies. I want to say Winter Soldier. And I remember that being just nothing but like nonstop shaky cam. And like the Casino Royale just feels like every shot is locked down. It's exactly where it needs to be. Yeah. And I'm just like, wow. Like, I don't know. It was very, uh, it felt it felt like a premium experience. You know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah. I, need, I haven't rewatched really that in a long time. I need to. Yeah. You should check it out. I think it's streaming. I think that's why we watched it. Okay, cool. But... Those were all the ones that I watched, Sean. What about you? I watched so many. I'm going to save some for next time, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a busy time. I watched... Well, I I had been watching and finally finished Once Upon a Time in America. Oh, yeah. Sergio Leone film. Uh, I'd never seen this before, and I got kind of swept up in the whole thing. You know, it is like watching several episodes of TV in a weird way. Yeah. Uh, And just something that you don't see a lot of in the theater. Which is kind of crazy because I think at the time it probably just felt a lot like Godfather 2. <laughs> and I get that. I get that. Mm-hmm. But I enjoyed it. I mean, there is a rape scene in this movie that is it's hard to recover from. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it necessarily asks you to do so. Right. But also doesn't completely want you to turn your back on spoilers to Nero that does the raping. Right. You've seen this movie recently at all? Not recently. I watched it, yeah, I mean, probably 20 years ago was the last time I saw it. I was reading um, some accounts of the theatrical release, which was considerably shorter. And even, like, the version that's out there, I guess, was, like, blood, sweat, and tears for Leone to get it down to that. Like, he originally wanted, like, a much longer four-hour movie or so. And just some of the choices made by those people, I don't know which producers or studio had final cut on the, uh, the release here, some of the choices they made are just so asinine. Yeah. There's a sequence where De Niro is is talking to James Woods in this mansion and James it's where James Woods lives and he mentions there's a secret exit over here. You can go out this door and you'll go you'll avoid all the, you know, the people that are down there, you know, parking cars or whatever, right? Well, they apparently cut that out of the theatrical one. But the scene still ends with Robert De Niro just going out this weird secret passageway <laughs> in a room that he's never been in before. <laughs> it just sounds preposterous. So I, I don't know. I kind of, I don't want to see that version, but uh, it just, I would like to, I'm going to read some more about it. How about that? Yeah. I stumbled upon a movie called Valerie and Her Week of Wonders. I think this is a, a Czech movie mm-hmm. It's from 1970. It's a weird, almost Werner Herzog Nosferatu, like it would be a great double feature fairy tale vampire probably dream movie some really really strong imagery i don't i don't know this director yaramil yuras i think is 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 perhaps how you pronounce his name yeah but this was on canopy with a k i think we mentioned that service before but man i'm loving that service if you have a library card from your library you should check and see if they support canopy because you can just log in and they got a ton of good stuff they got a bunch of the criterion collection they got a bunch of a24 films and -hmm. they're free and there's no ads so uh yeah i don't know why you wouldn't why you wouldn't do that no it would be stupid valerie and her week of wonders yeah uh rewatched goodfellas 
I mean, it was kind of one of those, I was like, I'm just gonna put this on, you know? Yeah. And then an hour went by and then I felt like I had to finish it the next day. Cause I, yeah, that movie just, it moves it with such a great pace. I, if yeah. that's not one of the most rewatchable movies of all time, when I shuffle off of this mortal coil, I I would love to argue what surpasses it because good God. No, agreed. I, I, I actually uh, got the Blu-ray a while ago and yeah, like watched it a few times in a row just because yeah, like, I can see yeah, that. Yeah. A few nights I just, you know, totally had to myself and I was just like, oh, I'm just gonna watch it again. There's so much I mean, stuffed yeah. into that movie. I still felt like I was discovering like something new this time. Yeah. Like there's these, there's a moment like where they use Polaroids and they just sort of like appear, bam, 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 uh, to do a like a passage of time. And mm-hmm. I was like, I forgot, I forgot about that. I don't remember these like Polaroids. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's some great stuff in those Polaroids too. Uh, last two. Uh, rewatch Bringing Up Baby. Yeah. I, I just don't love that movie. I, I know mm. it's a classic. I really, I I think it overextends its welcome. And I I've, I don't know. I, maybe I would have felt differently in 1938, perhaps, probably. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I, I remember watching it in film school and feeling that way and then watching it again for the first time in a long time. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to like this movie a lot more. And I think on the whole, I did. Right. But yeah, it, it it goes on, man. It just goes on. <laughs> it picks that tone and that style of, of humor and just does not relent for 102 minutes. So there you go. That can be rough. Last but not least, I watched a small film called The Writer from 2018. Uh, Sony Picture Classic directed by Chloe Zhao, who's going to do The Eternals for Marvel. Mm-hmm. And probably will look absolutely nothing like this movie because this is a really small movie about a um, a guy in like the Badlands, young guy who uh, is a rodeo rider and just had his head stepped on, and so like you're opening in a hospital as he's you know you know kind of waking up and he's got stitches in his head and uh, it's sort of like well now what are you going to do um, while you can't ride a horse for a while. Yeah. It's really specific to that place, but really good. I don't, I don't know. I enjoyed it. Check that out somewhere sometime. Yeah. And that's it. I'll save the rest for next time, Craig. Well, all right, Sean. Well, as long as you're saving that up, maybe we should get talking. Uh, I, was, I was trying to do a good segue. That didn't really, <laughs> that didn't feel. I feel like right. you got to word the word saving here somewhere. Yeah. You're saving that. Why don't you save us from not having a podcast episode? No. Ooh. Yeah. That'll work. Okay, okay. How about we just talk about compulsion? That's a great idea. I can see them. Stop by the rope. Around their necks. It would be done, of course, in the name of justice. Do you think you can cure the hatreds and maladjustments of the world by hanging them? Mr. Horn says that if we hang Hardy and Judd, dear... There'll be no more killing. The world has been one long slaughterhouse from the beginning until today. And the killing goes on and on and on. Why not read something? Why not think? Instead of blindly shouting for death. All right. So Compulsion is a movie from 1959, as we mentioned, directed by Richard Fleischer. Written by Richard Murphy, based on the novel by Meyer Levin. You got Orson Welles. Dean Stockwell, Bradford Dillman Well, no, it's just Bradford Dillman, oh. Oh. Uh, and Diane Varsi, sort of mm-hmm. our main four, and then E.G. Marshall comes in strong in the second half of the movie as well as District mm-hmm. Attorney Horn, 
and a couple other folks. Uh, I'll mention Martin Milner as a character, Sid, because I think he's perhaps more important than the rest, including your beloved Gavin McLeod, Thank who you. I don't even remember <laughs> this film. He was kind of hard to spot. Okay, yeah, and I'm sure he looked much different from the Love Boat days. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, he was one of the deputy uh, or district attorney's assistants. Anyway, uh, we'll hit you with the synopsis again. Two wealthy law school students go on trial for murder in this version of the Leopold Loeb case. For more on that specific case from the 20s, uh, you can listen to the podcast that's about to follow <laughs> mm-hmm. or listen to the tee up again because we went into some detail on that. Indeed. Craig, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you were not familiar with this movie at all prior to our tee up? I certainly wasn't. Neither was I. You watched it. Where'd you watch it? I watched it mostly on my uh, on my station down here. I watched it uh, from YouTube. I did as well. They have a couple copies floating around. One I watched was in HD and had some kind of janky digitizing effects going on there every mm. now and then. And although I thought the runtime looked longer than the other version, uh, they cut off of the, the very last shot. So you're not missing a ton. But anyway... You'll realize that when you get to the end like I did, and you might want to go flip to a different version on YouTube to see the last couple seconds, because I kind of liked something that they did there, which we'll talk about. But before we can, I need to know what the hell you thought of this movie, sir. I was mostly pleasantly surprised. Really liked the camera work. It looks like a, a beautiful movie. Cinemascope, right? Yeah. Cinemascope, really nice black and white. Some really, uh, really clever shots here and there. And uh, I don't know, just kind of telling the story pretty formally. Really thought Stockwell was incredible in a role that has to be understated at the time because basically what everyone's talking about when they talk about him can't be talked about, it seems like. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And I mean, I mean, just and especially for an audience today, it's like it would not go over anyone's head. What's what's, you know, correct. What his story is, what people think of him. Uh, mm-hmm. what he might be wrestling with or what they're saying he's wrestling with. So for a lot of it, yeah, I mean, that's uh, that was a good time watching it. What about you? Uh, mostly the same. I, I don't know if I'm quite as enthusiastic. I mean, honestly, just because I was so perplexed by a lot of it, uh, structurally, I guess, you know, it it's an interesting task to have such unsympathetic main characters. Mm-hmm. And then turn that around and have a good chunk of the movie be about about that very fact in a weird way. You know, it's sort of yeah. asking your you as an audience member to sit in that jury for part of the trial there at the end. And uh, I mean, it's just fascinating and weird. I mean, from a distance, yeah, I think it's it's kind of a fascinating, interesting, interesting movie. Yeah, engaged by it. Maybe more so the the second part, you know, and, the, and when Wells gets in, when these when these kids basically go into custody, maybe that then the front half, even though the front half is where the murder occurs, and mm-hmm. you're really getting to know these these two guys who are not not good people, right? And so it's just I don't know, it's just tough, but there's a lot of cool things going on. I do want to mention that maybe I'm just an idiot. I, I noticed that they gave credit in the opening, um, that the cinemascope lenses were by Bausch and Lomb, which I didn't know uh, beyond contacts that they made uh, cinema lenses. So that that was kind of interesting from back in the day. If you wear their contacts, apparently it's like, it's like Technicolor. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. 
Oh, do they do a black and white uh, version of? Ah, uh, they do. As well? They do. For color black. They're actually made of nitrate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so your your eyes can catch on fire. That's totally. Good. Yeah. Cool. Keep them away from open flames. You know, some of the performances I liked better than others, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm with you in thinking. I mean, Stockwell. I, I've never seen him at this level of intensity. Yeah. I bet you could count the number of times he blinked in this movie on two hands, like <laughs> solid, like that's it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe on the low, on the low side of that. But uh, I thought he was interesting. And then this Bradford Dillman guy who played Artie, the other uh, uh, other murderer here, I think both of us didn't really know him or his work. Boy, he was an interesting cat here too in this thing, you know? Yeah. He, he's sort of the the louder of the two, I guess. Yep. Uh, bigger of the two. Charismatic. Definitely more charismatic. But he had some nice moments as well, which I think yeah. we'll get into. But together... Yeah, they represent, I think, a lot of things that we dislike as a society in America. And in that sense, I thought this was a story that holds up, kind of, socially speaking. Absolutely. Yeah. Sadly, I guess, right? Yeah, that it's still sort of, yeah, under review. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it. So this movie is set in Chicago, 1924. We find that out in the very opening shot. Dean Stockwell and Bradford Dillman... Uh, Judd is Dean Stockwell's character name, and mm-hmm. Artie, again, is Bradford Dillman. Judd and Artie are basically, I think, escaping through the window of a frat house, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And I didn't quite follow what was going on there until a little bit later, but I believe, did they break in and steal some things? Yeah. So from their own frat house, correct? I think so. So, yeah, because they're escaping and, and, and Judd has taken the typewriter. Okay, but they get in the car and they pull out, you know, some booze and they toast mm-hmm. to the perfect crime. And uh, that's Dean's line, Dean Stockwell. But Artie doesn't necessarily agree. He, you know, there's some chastising here that Stockwell froze in the moment in there, whatever was going on. As they drive away, I don't know. I, I think to me, probably the most distracting sequence of the movie from a technical standpoint, because that's all like rear projection, right? Yeah, I think so. And just, it's, I don't know, you know, sometimes that works fine. Here it was, it, I found it a little jarring, partly because, like, you know, <laughs> the next thing you know, they're out in the drive in the middle of the night, and there's a guy, like, drunk in the road, kind of trying to flag them down. Artie's just pointing the car right at this guy until, you know, Dean Stockwell grabs the wheel and they jerk away. And even some of that was, was some kind of projection. That may have been front projection or something. Yeah. You know, usually you just have like scenery going by, right? Yeah. And so to have like a character in there, I was like, well, this is weird. Like, But I don't know. I thought it was kind of interesting. Let's talk about the power dynamics here in that scene then because after they they miss this guy and they knock him down and they realize, oh, he's drunk and he's kind of yelling at him. He wants to talk to them. They've got the car stuck in the mud. Um, but Artie is sort of saying, oh, you want to drive? Go for it. And then the next thing you know, they're getting the car out and he basically orders Judd to hit that guy. I don't like what do you make heads or tails of all that and kind of how it parlays to the rest of it? Well, I mean, a a part of him telling Judd to do that isn't that there's a whole thing about Judd saying, yeah, like he'll do, he'll do anything that he says. I'll do anything. Like I'm not afraid to experience life. What, What is their thing? Experience life. And you know, in every possible dimension or something, you know? Yeah, they've definitely, like, 
grabbed on to this philosophy. I think they're taken from Nietzsche, which is it comes up later in a classroom scene. It's basically like, you know, experience detached from emotion. You know, being superior intellect means you're above moral codes. Right. And so in a way they're challenging each other to live by that because they think mm-hmm. they are that. I guess Artie is a clear representation of that or of, of someone that seems capable of that mm-hmm. as opposed to, to Judd. But then, I don't know. I mean, there's moments, <laughs> there's moments where Judd just seems cold and calculating as hell, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I think that works. I mean, that, that works for me anyway, just oh, yeah. because, yeah, he, he clearly, you know, he admires Artie loves Artie. Yeah, I think there's some of that there for sure. Yeah, is totally uh you know what wants Artie's acceptance. Mhm. And the more Artie treats him like shit, the more he wants acceptance, which is just that's a that's a not unusual dynamic in this world. You know, there's a scene later on where I think it really all pays off where, you know, he's trying to be as calculating as Artie and to not care like Artie doesn't care and to be you know, as much like Artie as possible, and he can't. Right. He really can't. Yep. Not to let him get away with anything that he actually does in this movie. Yeah. Because he, he, he clearly wants to do these things just to be like Artie, impress Artie, maybe get Artie to, you know, love him back. It's a very believable dynamic and it um, and a powerful one. Yeah, I think it works well as a dichotomy, and it's yeah. interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think of something like In Cold Blood, which I need to revisit the film of, and there's some of that going on. And I, and I feel like it's um, it's interesting to know that this is based on a, a true story, and, and I wonder, you know, we didn't really get into the sort of, like, personalities of those two guys at all in the tee-up, but I do wonder, like, how much of that is true um, as yeah. far as the differences between these two guys because I do feel like, yeah, you could probably find a number of at least like fictionalized movies and stories that, that kind of use a similar dynamic uh, within like the crime genre. You know, the guy who's doing the job but there's that little nagging voice in the back of his head where you know he's not 100% in. in. And meanwhile, the other guy is completely gone, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's neat to see that in like an early form here and something from this era. And especially with a guy like Dean Stockwell, who I don't think of in this kind of role. Yeah. Um, But anyway, they do not hit the drunk guy in the road. Stockwell, again, moves the wheel away at the last second. Artie gets this like smirk on his face and he's like, you know why I tried it, Judzy? Because I damn well felt like it, which is the tagline from, you know, we talked about and it's on the poster. And then he like laughs maniacally (laughs) and uh, the title comes up. And man, I love that font they use. It's like, yeah, it's almost like the Munsters or something. I was yeah, trying to think yeah. of like, it has a, that sort of like B movie vibe to it completely. Totally. And this, this really isn't that, that kind of movie. I don't think, I mean, it sort of straddles yeah. those lines, but from a font standpoint, it totally is. And I love that they, I love that they use that. Right. Yeah. These two guys then. You know, at the end of the night, they're kind of making their plans again. You know, they're it, they're talking about committing a crime, and um, essentially they're talking about murder. But like Stockwell says, like it must be done as an experiment, detached, no emotion, and no reason other than to show we can do it. Um, but then we get a look at his home life. So he walks in, and that's your first indication, really, that this kid 
comes from wealth. I mean, the house is pretty lavish. They've got like a taxidermied eagle or something right there mm-hmm. in the entryway. And in walks this guy who's a bit taller, a bit older than him, who's wearing like a silk robe. And this is Richard Anderson in the role of Max, Judd's older brother. And, you know, he's like, where were you? We were worried about the car. You know, father and I were worried about the car. <laughs> he keeps talking about the car. Yeah. Boy, Judd does not like this guy. And it, <laughs> I couldn't help but but think about weird science, like uh, Chet and Wyatt, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost like that, except for a reverse, where here Judd clearly is the smarter kid, and and, and the older brother is, is acknowledging that, and he's, just, you know... Judge just started law school, and they're all like looking forward to seeing what he can do with that, you know, bright education and future in mind. But uh, uh, Max makes it very clear that he doesn't think much of Artie. I don't remember what it was. Oh no, he called him evil. I think, and uh, yeah. boy, Judge just flips his shit. Oh yeah, that was crazy. I don't remember. I don't even remember what Stockwell was screaming there. But um, I think it was just like, don't you call him that? You know, kind of stops upstairs and. Uh, I don't I mean I don't know what's going on there entirely. I mean is it is it possible that that scene is just about I I don't like the fact that I think that you might be gay. I, it could be. I mean yeah. it definitely could be because it it very much felt like you got this older brother who's absolutely aligned with a father and then Judd not. I think I definitely think you could make that interpretation correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think it's supported by other things in the movie and which we'll talk about, but, uh, yeah, that might be kind of like an underlying thing here. I don't know. We should do our research. There's probably some dissertations written about that, but, uh, wait, research. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. I okay. use we'll beep that out. <laughs> Thank you. But speaking of research, uh, I believe the next scene kind of after that is, uh, when Stockwell is in class and, you know, he's, seems to be some sort of, you know, law theory class and they're, they're referencing Nietzsche. And um, I mean, I was taken aback, A, just by the fact that every student is wearing a suit and tie, you know. <laughs> so, yes. so it was just such a different time and era. But also, you know, Stockwell's kind of a dick in that class, you know. Uh, he's yes. challenging his professor and he does it like initially just to get to create a distraction so that the character Sid, played by Martin Milner, can sneak mm-hmm. in because he's late. It was just one of those things because, like, well, we've just seen this, like, moment of vulnerability from Judd. And then, again, like, this movie just challenged me throughout. It was like, nope, I'm going to follow that right up where he's an asshole <laughs> completely. And you're not going to like him. Uh, but just keep going for yeah. the ride. And uh, I just thought that was all kind of interesting. Well, I like the fact, yeah, like, that scene, I feel like that's the first time you kind of see him completely in control. And he's, he's not with Artie. We should mention that, too. Like, Artie right. is not in that class. Not with Artie. So, yeah, before he's he's trying to keep up with Artie. He's scared. And the other one, he's yelling at his brother. Mm-hmm. And this one, yeah, he's being a dick, but he's completely, I don't know, he's, like, cool-headed for the first time. No, you're right. I mean, and, like, he, in a lot of ways, puts that professor in his place. Yeah. And, in fact, that's a conversation that uh, Sid has with Judd after class. is like, man, every time I say something, you know, he just chews me up. But you, it's like, you go head to head with this guy and, and hold your own. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, okay. I guess this kid's got like an ethos in a way. Um, you know, and he's presenting himself at least to his classmates who aren't arty in a very specific way, which yeah. I found off-putting, but then 
you know, the next thing after that, it's like, oh, here's all the students hanging out in the quad and you got Artie's telling jokes basically or story like he's planning a celebration at a bar that night. And Mm -hmm. here's a couple girls who are all just like this group of young friends. And I think that's the first time that we meet Ruth, played by Diane Varsi, who is dating Sid. I don't know, man. Like, uh, I don't want to harp too much upon her. But to me, she's the weak link of this movie. I don't know how much of it's her fault at all. I mean, the role is interesting. There were times where her line deliveries were just like... Barely there. There was just some awkward pauses in the middle of them every now and then. I'm like, you don't need to just read. Just like, who's making this decision? So, I don't know. If anybody's seen her in anything else uh, that you liked her in, let me know. Because I feel bad Uh, just picking on her, you know? I was feeling the same way. Yeah, okay. it was. It it did kind of feel like maybe that was. I I don't know. I don't know. I guess we don't have to harp on it too long. But yes, no, I, no. I I agree. She does play an important part in this movie. And here's something I didn't see happening after this little get together where they're planning uh, the night's festivities. Uh, the one guy who can't quite come when they want him to come is Sid because it turns out he also is working as a journalist of some kind at uh, the Chicago Globe. It's, I don't know, like I didn't expect that, oh, we're going to go follow him to his mm-hmm. job. And we do. And he's there. And there appears to be sort of two separate uh, stories uh, floating around the office on this day. And one is uh, a young kid has gone missing. And the other is they there's a body that was drowned that they found. You know, Sid kind of poses a question like, well, do you think there's any chance that these two things are connected and, uh, man, I loved that. Uh, I don't remember who the, the morgue guy was, but <laughs> I liked Yeah, he's pretty great. Yeah, I liked his performance for sure. So, um, yeah, Sid is, is ushered into, uh, you know, the, the, the freezer there with the bodies. And uh, this dude is just smoking a cigar and uh, got his uh, arm around him, very friendly. He picks up uh, the corpse's arm, lifts it up, and in the process, a pair of glasses falls out somewhere from the table and uh he's showing sid that no 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 this kid didn't drown you know the coroners will get a hold of him but look at those lumps on his head you know this kid was slugged sid then leans down and picks up the glasses asks if there's a phone he can use and the guy just leaves him by himself (laughs) in the room with all these bodies uh, while he makes a phone call, which I was just one, I was like, oh, I don't know if that would happen today. You're just going to leave a journalist in here? Yeah, no. But nonetheless, dicey. you need it because he reports back uh, to his superior that, you know, this was not a drowning. This is a murder. And these glasses, they don't fit this kid. They're too big for him. Uh, I think these might belong to the person who did this. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. What do you think about that? I thought it was an interesting device to your sleuth, it turns out, is going to be a guy who we've already seen in a scene with the murders, you know? Yeah. And by the way, they never show any of the murder whatsoever. No. The most they show is is them talking about doing something like that. Right. And there's barely even, was there a picture of the kid, the victim? I not that I remember. I know I'm trying to remember as well. His parents aren't in the thing really. The most you get kind of on that side of the fence is he has an uncle that comes to ID the body. Sid is able to ask this uncle, you know, is there any chance uh, this this kid wore glasses? And the uncle says no. 
And right. so they don't let all the other reporters who were there know this. And of course, his boss is like, we got the scoop. You know, the, well, this will be the hit. The morning papers will be ahead of these, you know, suckers by a mile. Yeah. There's part of me is like, man, that I kind of wish there were more Sid in this movie, like just a little more sleuthing, like from his sure. side of things. I was like, that, that stuff's kind of fascinating to me. But anyway, from there, uh, we go to a bar. Artie's dancing, having good time, getting drunk. And uh, boy, Judd Dean Stockwell is not the life of the party. The party. No. Yeah. He is. Uh, do you remember what he was talking about in the corner with Ruth? No. I know. I'm trying to remember. It was something about, you know, kids don't choose their parents. They shouldn't be bound to them, you know, their morals or anything like that at a certain point. It comes out there that he doesn't like his father and that his mother died when he was eight. So. Right paints your picture of his home life up to this point. They're sitting around the table and Sid is there and they're celebrating, you know, they've heard that Sid had a big break on on a news story and all this. And then Sid, you know, Sid's rightfully, you know, not too cheery <laughs> given what he's just witnessed, you know, and been in a room with a corpse of a like 14 year old boy. He mentions, you know, there's more to it than that. It's that he found this pair of glasses Mm-hmm. I love that like reaction. Like Dean Stockwell just kind of immediately freezes and like starts sweating, and like he and Artie are sharing glances from across the table. He's patting his coat pocket. He doesn't even realize he he's lost his glasses. Artie just suddenly gets pissed, smashes like a glass of beer, and cuts his hand and walks off. And yeah. uh, and also again, like it's just weird because we haven't seen the murder. Yeah, I had actually thought I'd missed something. I mean, in a way, it feels like it It should be there. But uh, yeah. I guess it's like, you know, maybe that's just one of those things where you're really painting yourself into a like a film noir corner and this yeah. movie isn't quite that, you know? Well, I guess, yeah, like maybe it's just gratuitous. Maybe. To show that murder because... It's a kid, yeah. You know, you know they're going to murder somebody. They talk about it. And yeah, like, yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting choice to completely leave that just completely out of the movie. Yeah, I mean, there's also the you know the, the old thing of like you hear the details from Orson Welles later. Well, they go over it over and over again throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah, and it, but it still has impact when when you when you get to that and you you've heard it. I guess I don't know. Yeah, the point being, we don't know we don't know how he dropped those glasses. You know, how did yeah. that happen? Is it? Crazy to think that they didn't realize that that until right in this moment. And then speaking of weird, uh, how about that conversation with the teddy bear that Artie has? That was kind of creepy. Well, speaking of creepy, how about the fact that, yeah, he's talking to this legitimately horrifying teddy bear. It is, yeah. And there's no doubt about that. And meanwhile, they're they're like in Norman Bates's bedroom mm-hmm. with all these stuffed birds and like taxidermy and all that stuff. Yeah, the whole thing is is very unsettling. You even got some Dutch angles in there. Ooh, it's a good time. But the point of this conversation, I think, was again just showing Artie in sort of the position of power, and he's basically using this bear to talk about how incompetent Judd is for having lost the glasses. Yeah, at the same time. The scene ends. Stockwell is rightfully more worried about this than Artie. You know, Stockwell was saying, you know, but what if they do find out who these glasses belong to? What then? And Artie just says, so what? They're not mine. Yeah. Damn. I mean, <laughs> that dude is cold. Yeah. 
I think from that point, you know, let's carry out this thread of, of maybe there there's more longing in a relationship from the Judd character. I think at that point, you know, it's like it's never happened. Like it's these guys aren't even friends, I think. Yeah. So I don't know. I think the middle of this movie, and I don't even know if it's necessarily the middle because it does in some ways feels like two halves. But there's a bit where it feels like they're trying to impose Ruth upon the situation a little bit Mm -hmm. by having her take a bit of an interest in Judd. They make plans to go like bird watching and things like that. At the same time, I got confused because like Artie is like suddenly talking to a cop. Yeah. And giving names about people that um that, like hang out around this playground or or a school or whatever it was. Some of it kind of lost me a little bit there just because I think I was still kind of hanging on to the hope that Sid was going to be piecing things together like some sort of procedural and that's Right. And that ain't what this movie is at all. Let's talk then about the I mean it's not a date, but it is Judd and Ruth going out to a park. Mm-hmm. And this is after, like, Artie's... I mean, did he come right out and suggest that Judd kill her? I, I, I didn't follow... I thought it was mainly... I, I thought it was attack her, meaning rape her. Okay. That's what I thought okay. it was supposed to Well, that to makes be. sense, yeah, because that's kind of where we go. But, um, you know, he's, like, accusing Judd of falling in love with her and taking his eye off of what they're supposed to be doing, which is kind of watching the cops run around in circles and throwing them off and, and using their superior intellect to further themselves away with this, this perfect crime, so to speak. But Judd and Ruth go to, I don't know, it's like some marsh or something, some park. Yeah, to look at birds. What you do as college students. Mm-hmm. But while they're there, Judd points out, he's like, hey, I think over there, is, that's where they found that Kessler boy. That's where they found the body. And Ruth quickly does not like this conversation, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And she even says, you're not this cruel. Like, why are you doing this? They have this whole conversation where he comes out and says, murder's nothing. It's just a simple experience, murder and rape. Do you know what beauty there is in evil? She replies, do you want me to run, Judd? You'll have to attack me. Yeah. So I guess is she reading in between the lines that, that he's going to try something with her? I guess. Well, and that's a question for me is, I don't know. What does she mean by that? Do you want me to run? If you want me to run, you'll have to attack me. Yeah. It just seems like, no, you should just run. Why are you hanging out with him at all at this point if you're if you're scared? I don't know. I didn't understand what was going on there. I have many questions about her character in the scene. And uh, I'm sure she says what she says on trial, which we're, we're getting to. But yeah, I, I don't know, man. I mean, he does. He pushes her to the ground. He lays on top of her. He kisses her. Mm-hmm. Don't know that it's clear that she's trying to fight back because it happens so quickly then that he rolls off of her. Well, that yeah, I guess that's the thing. Is it doesn't seem like she's trying to defend herself. It doesn't seem like there's a scheme here. Right. I don't know. I, I was trying to figure out just exactly how twisted this whole moment really was. And it didn't... Because she does not seem twisted to me at all. No, uh-uh. Like, up until this mo- p- uh, point, like, she and Sid, like, they're like, they're like the, the squeaky clean people. Yeah. They're the happy couple. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, I don't I don't understand her handling of this situation. No, and I mean she he says, "Are you afraid of me?" and she says, "I'm afraid for you, for you, Judd." And, yeah. uh, and he he's like crying and he says, "I'm so ashamed." 
which that I think you could absolutely read into that. And perhaps if there's a closeted homosexuality thing going on here with this character, I mean, that whole sequence maybe feeds into that interpretation. Maybe. Saying you're ashamed, not going through with it. Well, yeah. Wanting her to be afraid of him, and she's not. Right. And I was going to say, didn't Sid just before this say something about, well, you know, if she's going out there with Judd, you know, I got nothing to worry about or something like that. Oh, yeah, he's totally unconcerned about it. You know, it's just like, yeah, he's... He's a harmless little guy. So, I mean, is is the way she handles that situation, is she saying, like, prove to me that you're not gay? <laughs> I don't know. It's still, it's, it's complicated with Ruth here, Craig. I don't know. It really is. Uh, yeah. I don't know why it has to be this complicated. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I got, I'm, I got an eye on this one now. I'm, I'm kind of side eye in this movie. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't want to tear down the house of cards here, but. um. No. Yeah. So let's, uh, I, I don't want to skip this little sequence just because that was super cool. Is, uh, and there's no reason, I mean, there's nothing organic about it whatsoever, but Artie and Judd, next thing you know, they're just like at some sheep farm, goat farm. As you do. And there's one black goat leading uh, a herd of white goats. Artie says that's the Judas goat, and he explains this concept. Well, I don't know, I've never heard of this whatsoever, but, no. and they, you see it happen right in front of you. It's like, He's like, that's the goat the others follow and then watch. He veers to the left at the very end and they go in through the door to the right straight into the slaughterhouse. Artie just loves this. And I was like, that is pretty cool. I've left like the Judas goat. Yeah. It feels like it should be a band name if nothing else. <laughs> like it's, it's good. <laughs> that was my last notable scene really before these two guys really do become suspects. And mm-hmm. to the point where I was a bit surprised then about how the cops, like how that happened, you know? Uh, again, it's like, yeah. you know, one of that sort of procedural aspect of it, the doorbell rings and the cops are, are asking Judd about his glasses and they take him to a hotel for questioning to avoid reporters, or at least that's the uh, uh, the auspices of that premise. And um, I was a little confused about how the cops came to him. I mean, there there had been some discussion previously about the fact that there's like over 4,000 people who own the same type of glasses that uh, Judd had, right? That's where we meet E.G. Marshall uh, in this hotel. He plays the uh, district attorney, Harold Horn. I liked his performance, man. I thought he was good. Like, there's there's a quality to him that made me think of Richard Jenkins for some reason. Um, Sure. You know, maybe it's just the hair line and the glasses and uh, just some of his delivery. But I I thought he was really good, man. They're questioning him. They're asking him, you know, about if it's possible he just lost his glasses as well because he doesn't have them, obviously. And he says he doesn't know what happened to them. And so they're like, well, let's just see, you know, maybe if you had it in your coat and you fell over, would the glasses have fallen out? And so they hand him a pair of glasses, you know, presumably the glasses. Judd goes through the motions, bends over, pretends to fall. The glasses do not fall out, but then... Yeah, if you take your coat off, what about you just take your coat off and set it down over there and picked it up then? Um, could they have fallen out that way? And that actually does indeed work. Mm-hmm. And it's not long after that. In fact, the cops have narrowed down the list of glasses owner because that particular pair has a new hinge. And there's only three people in Chicago who have that new model. And uh, the other two apparently had alibis, basically. Hmm. 
and hinge in the glasses. I got. I'm checking mine right now, man. I want to make sure they're not yeah. going like, to give me away before but. you do anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, glasses play play a big part in this movie, and then even in the imagery. Um, anyway, Artie is then brought in, you know, and of course. Judd has used Artie as his alibi in the story that he has told the cops 10 times and he's never wavered. By the time Artie's brought in, it's like a madhouse. There's like reporters all over this damn hotel. (laughs) You get those little tastes that this is going to be some sort of big news story, but it it only kind of comes through that. You don't have like the spinning newspaper headline. You know, you don't have the parents sitting around hearing them talk about it on the radio or things like that. Artie gets questioned. You ask how long this is going to take. And then just sort of slyly mentions, well, you know, my my parents don't like it when I'm not home for dinner or when I'm late for dinner, especially, you know, when we're having company like uh, you know, Judge Conway is coming over tonight. Clearly, that was meant to be a, a name drop for the district attorney mm-hmm. when they ask him if he can think about Wednesday. What happened Wednesday, Artie? Uh, he, he doesn't really, can't really think of anything. He's like, well, this and that. But then his like face drops. It's like, that was the night. They found the Kessler boy's body, wasn't it? He's like suddenly serious. And I was like, well, that's, that's a pretty good poker face there. I'm liking that, liking that. Yeah. But then there was a moment, Craig, where I questioned. Uh-oh. Yeah. So Harold Horn uh, gets interrupted by one of the police officers. It's just, I think about like, you want me to go do blah, 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 blah. And he's like, no, let's, uh, uh, let's get uh, May and Edna uh, here. It's played as if the attorney and the cop are just having this conversation but it's certainly loud enough that Artie can hear. Right. Significance of that is the names May and Edna were the names that Judd had talked about with Artie as like, that's going to be our story. We were out with these two girls, May and Edna, and uh, blah, 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 blah. And so Artie then quickly changes his story hearing those two names basically lining up. It's like, yeah, okay, I didn't, I didn't want to say it because you know, if this gets back to my father, he's going to kill me, but yeah. All right, we were out with two girls. They were tramps, you know. I, yeah. you know, I didn't want them to admit it. I, I'm still not sure as if that attorney did that on purpose or not. Like said those names loud enough. Yeah. You think so? It certainly seems like the type of thing he would do. I'm inclined to believe that just because of how some of the other things happened after that. But at the time, right. I was like, Jesus Christ, these guys are bad cops. Like, what are they doing? <laughs> you know, why would you just like have that conversation on the other side of the door? So, yeah, I, I mean, I I think he's laying a trap here. Now, I did mm-hmm. not expect that that would include them then going to a German restaurant. Craig, did you? I didn't, but then I'm always taken off guard whenever any German restaurant scene occurs in anything. In anything? What about a German movie? Okay, you got me there. <laughs> you got me there. Okay. They bring up the fact that, uh, you know, um, your car, Judd, isn't that a two-seater and uh, it's like, oh, are they going to get busted here with a story about having girls? But no, nope, Artie just laughs and says, you know, I thought you'd be hip to this, but when you drive a two-seater, that forces the girls to sit in your lap. <laughs> the gentlemen go to the restroom, and the attorney confesses with the cops who were there that, you know what, yeah, he doesn't know how long he can hold these guys without a charge, but those damn glasses are still bothering him. They take him back to the hotel. They find out that Judd's father had sent the chauffeur over to bring him his pajamas if Judd was going to have to stay the night, which I thought was funny. And also mm-hmm. a pretty good indication of who the father is that he didn't come along with him when his son is in, you know, being questioned for an entire day, right? Yeah. Um, the chauffeur says, you know what? I know, I know 
It's only a matter of time for you to let these boys go. They couldn't have done it because the car was in the garage all day. It was He was working on the brake lines. And uh, that's a clue that the story is bullshit. And so Horn like immediately grabs a hold of that. And uh, I thought about there's a good scene on L.A. Confidential where Guy Pierce is playing two witnesses against each other, kind of yeah. going from room to room. And there's a little bit of that here, you know. And so Horn walks in and tells Dean Stockwell that Artie just confessed. They even got in there like, you know, Judd is like, that's uh, that's funny. You know, I'm in law school and that's like, you know, a trick from detective shows. Really, that's what you're going to do? But he does kind of break him a little bit. He says that, you know, Strauss is lying, calls him a child, an inferior weakling. He, like, tries to literally run to the next room and kill him. Um, he's like, he didn't drive the car, I did. And I didn't kill that kid. Artie did. He's lying. And so the tactics worked. Like, he, he got to, to oh, Judd. Yeah. That's kind of all from that part of the movie. And we launch into full-on lawyer land. Let's talk about uh, Orson Welles' entrance, shall we? Oh, we shall. What'd you think of that, Craig? Well, I thought many things. So it started out where they're they're talking about the uh the lawyer that they uh it's it's a uh, is it Artie's family or is it Judd's family? No, it's, it's Judd's father, I believe. All oh, right, they're know. they're together and they're talking about they sort of have to talk about him so to build the mystery of this guy, right? Right. You, by the way, this is like an hour into the movie and I I knew that cuz I read it in the trivia, but like were you at all like looking at your watch going when the hell is Orson Welles going to show up in this thing? I mean, kind of. I I guess in in the way I was thinking of it was that Orson Welles didn't much enjoy being in the movie. Right. <laughs> and and that he's it was probably good. Honestly, I was thinking it was going to be like a Raymond Burr situation mm-hmm. from uh, out of the out of the blue. Yeah. Where it was just yeah, he'll, like he'll be in a couple scenes. Gotcha. You know, like it, it's not going to be that big a deal. So actually, the the amount of Orson Welles I got and the level of Orson Welles I got, I, I was kind of uh, pleased with. Oh, dude, like the I mean the rest of the movie is his essentially. Yeah. Right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was surprised by that too, even knowing that he's not going to show up until an hour in. But anyway, yeah, I like that. I think it's always a good idea to build up a character before you see him. Yeah. To me, it was fascinating then that like the next scene, we just see uh, Artie and Judd in a room overflowing with reporters and deputy, you know, attorney Horn. I keep calling him deputy, district attorney Horn. Uh, Horn is reading Artie's confession. Judd challenges it. Artie challenges him. And then Horn gives the reporters five minutes to ask questions. And I'm just like, there, <laughs> I, man, that's like a different uh, different time, I think. Uh, I don't think that's happening so much today. And then in walks Orson Welles. He's got that smug look on his face. Every line he delivers, I feel like, is a witty rejoinder to whatever has been said before. I was wondering if, if, if how many times Orson Welles was like, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say it this way. I'm going to say this because it's more clever. Yeah. Like, there's definitely that sort of feeling to every single thing he says. He's definitely better and smarter than anyone in the room. Mm-hmm. And he's never bested. No, but I thought it was interesting then that he sort of holds himself physically and in his appearance as if he's like the last person who would be that, right? He's he's certainly disheveled, slightly sweaty. His hair's greasy. Yeah. He's got like bags under his eyes and stuff. And he just kind of yeah. is like... He's like droopy dog in a way. Like he's his his tone or his volume at least is always at like a four, you know. And he's like never a yeah. never really above that, even in the courtroom. Um, and there's something compelling about. I gotta say, like I've yeah. I didn't feel like he just phoned this damn thing in, you know. No, I I really expected it to be, and I it doesn't feel like it. 
it's almost like he's like this i don't know he brought everyone to his level whether that was up or down i don't know mm-hmm. but suddenly it was an orson welles movie and now you're acting against orson welles yeah so whatever you do that's not going to affect him you better just act off of him it works. It makes it really makes him the focal point. And I think that's a, a a great thing about the casting of him is yeah, like that's kind of kind of what he's supposed to be. Exactly. Like he's supposed to be this revered and respected lawyer, this this eight hundred pound gorilla, I guess you could say. Yeah, I mean he is the larger than life, you know, personality in this thing in a weird way, even though you got two murderers who take up the rest of the movie. But it it is crazy too, because like Dean Stockwell and Bradford Dillman they don't get a ton of opportunity to really play off of him or, or act in scenes with dialogue from their characters. No, there's only one, I think. Yeah, with him, which is, yeah, uh, yeah it's just kind of interesting and crazy. I mean, like, even, like, the still that I pulled for the episode artwork of the previous episode is the three of them. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this will be, yeah, these three guys in a room, that'll be really fascinating and, and interesting. It's like, well, there's not a ton of that, um, you know, because then they're, in the courtroom, they don't get to say much, uh, the other two. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of things that happen in this in the rest of this movie that I do want to mention. Um, uh, there's another scene with Sid and Ruth. And that one, again, I was just like, man, I'm not enjoying her line reader- readings. But Sid is questioning her about having gone on this, you know, gone out with, with Judd. And she's like, you must feel awful about knowing what they've done now. And she's like... Well, I know how the parents must feel, but I feel sad for Judd and Artie. And it was just like, wait, you do? Why? You know? <laughs> and he even says, like, he tried to rape you and you defend him? And yeah. she argues that she didn't see Sid. She saw a child, basically, in that moment. She didn't see Judd. Judd, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he's like, you sound like you wish he'd gone through with it. And he ends up slapping her. And he says, I hope he hangs. Like, I hope he hangs to the rope rots. And uh, that's a great line. Slapping aside, I was kind of with him, you know? Yeah. But that's that's the dichotomy that they're establishing, and that's what plays out in the court case. And that's that's what Wells is kind of asking the audience to decide is sort of, do you defend somebody who's done something heinous, or do you call for justice that requires uh, doing another thing that's heinous, you know? Yeah. And that really is the extent of the trial. But the other thing I wanted to mention that's outside of the courtroom is uh, there's one morning where Wells comes out with, like, we see his house, basically. And, uh, like, the the previous night, the Klan has set fire to a cross in his yard. That was weird to me just because it's like, oh, they're doing this because he's representing these murderers? I was like, but they're white murderers, you know? Right. Like, where? Do, what does this have to do with race exactly? <laughs> you know. Well, but or with, I wasn't I sure. But that was that. I don't know. Was that a reference to a different case of Clarence Darrow's? I don't know. But anyway, anyway, the Klan yeah. burns across in the guy's yard, and when he comes out the next morning, there's reporters around, and he's just not really bothered by it. And they they ask him about his fee, and it was like reportedly getting a million dollars, and he says, "Well, you know." That's not necessarily why I'm doing this. It's like, But to deny the rich the same right to a defense as the poor might be to go along with the same kind of thinking that started that fire in reference to the cross. And that, I wasn't necessarily expecting them to take the class angle, you know, in this thing, yeah. which I, I should have seen coming a mile away, but that was kind of interesting <laughs> to me, right? Yeah. And he brings it up again, like in, in, the, in the case, you know, he says, like, um, they talk about the fact that 
no man under 21 in Chicago has ever been put to death um, for anything. And like, if he were defending two poor kids, would the cry from the public for blood be as loud? And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about this freaking like college admissions scandal with all these (laughs) rich people paying 500 grand to get their kids who don't even care about college into Yale and stuff. Man, people have been really upset at them about that whole thing. And I I am too. I mean, I think it sucks. But uh, it was, I was like, you know, I wasn't really expecting to think about that during this movie. Well, and it's it's an interesting point to bring up. It's an interesting point to, to be watching this movie these days. Absolutely. Honestly, because yeah, at this point, yeah, it's it's clear that the, you know, the the, the sentiment generally is, well, the rich get off easy mm-hmm. every single time. So that is, yeah, so I guess that is kind of it, but at the same time, I don't know if if two poor kids had done this, I don't think there's going to be people calling for mercy. I, like I Right, know. yeah. You know, so yeah, interesting. We should point out, right. like, there was a jury at the start of this, but it's a very short point of the movie. I don't remember if it happened in conversation because if it didn't, I don't even know if it's it's legal. But for the purpose of the movie, it would be fine. Wells changes the plea of Judd and Artie to guilty, and he even says he's like, I I was sitting there looking into those jurors' eyes, and I knew that these boys wouldn't stand a chance. And, like, the parents are pissed about it. You know, they don't like that. It's a huge risk. And, you know, they can only pray to God that that what Orson Welles has done is, is right and going to save their kids from the, from, the, from the death penalty. So now it all lies upon the judge. Like, there's no jury in the room. And basically, Welles is just making his case to the judge and to the room. I still just found that fascinating in the sense that nothing had happened to that point to make me change my mind as far as feeling any sympathy towards Judd and Artie. I maybe feel a little more now because we've talked about like the sexuality thing as like a possible, you know, maybe that, but that still doesn't excuse. And in fact, it's, it's maybe more problematic to say that, you know, that's, you would turn to murder because of, you know, uh, being unable to express your love. And there's a shot, during this before the the closing remarks of Orson Welles and I can't remember what exactly was said before this but you know I'm pretty sure it was Orson Welles had a had a good another witty remark oh yeah he's full of them and and there's this great shot of in the courtroom of, of Judd and Artie laughing and all these faces around him of his family like it like his dad is his head is bowed and just like just looks miserable yep. and his brother looks miserable. Like everyone else looks terrible. And those two are just laughing. Ruth takes the stand. She says, you know, she felt sorry for Judd then. She feels sorry for him now. Judd stands up and faints. Um, she basically, oh, yeah. I mean, in a way she was saying that she like loved him is how I kind of read that scene. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I just was like, I don't quite know why she feels this way. Um, I mean, there's a love of some kind. It does seem like there's a, just a lot not being said. Like, even if it's, I mean, maybe, you know, she had a family member who was gay, you know? Like, she knows what he's going through. Right. Like, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't, it seems very odd that she would be attracted to him. Mm-hmm. Certainly haven't seen that. But, you know, the, 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 that, that empathy could be coming from anywhere. But all that leads to, like, your sort of, like, closing argument, I guess. And, and it is a really, really strong anti-death penalty monologue that Orson Welles delivers. I mean, he throws out cruelty breeds cruelty. 
the state makes the argument that killing in the name of justice prevent future killing, but still the killing goes on. He's the world has been one great slaughterhouse from day one. I think he said something along those lines, and uh, you know he kind of comes around to saying, I, "I'm pleading for love." You know, mercy being the highest attribute of of humanity. And I mean, so there's some like lofty things going on in there, and I found it impressive. I also felt like. Some of this feels like TV to me a little bit here, you know, and I, I really only have like Perry Mason as a reference to go on when I watched reruns as a kid, you know, mm-hmm. it's very static and it's, it's just, it's very talkative. But again, you got this great, great actor delivering it. He makes his case. He takes the seat and the judge adjourns the court till the next morning. We come back. The sentencing is read. They get life plus 99 years, as we know from the tee-up. Artie's immediately pissed. I mean, sort of revealing his true color. Says he wished they'd just been hung right off the bat. Says that to Orson Welles. You know, a reporter asks, are you remorseful? And he says, hell no. Or I don't even says hell no, but he definitely, like, isn't. <laughs> I said hell no. You know, and Orson Welles says something about it. was like, well, I didn't expect you to, to kneel before God, Artie. Or, you know, it was, it, there was some line right. where he brought up God and immediately Judd jumps on that and says, you know, it's funny that you of all people would bring up God as if that had something to do with it. And, you know, he's made his conclusion that God had nothing to do with it. And Orson Welles asked him if he's so sure. You know, it wasn't it the hand of God that made him drop those glasses that night. Like, and if not, who was it? And they sort of play this as if Judd suddenly is like, oh, holy shit, that was fate. You know, or, you know, it's like, yeah. again, like that sort of idea of like, if, if you're a superhuman and super intellect, then these like things like fate and the hand of God don't don't apply to you. Right. I don't know if in the, <laughs> if those exact words were spoken between those exact people in real life, if if that would be the reaction of the Judd person. Right. I don't know. But it makes for good drama. And uh, it does. Yeah. And then speaking of glasses, you know, Judd has no answer. The cameras flash from the reporters. And then suddenly these like overlay of a pair of glasses um, appears on screen and kind of zooms in close close to us and fills up the screen. And uh, mm-hmm. and that's it. That's the end. That's your movie. I thought it was such a cool little thing there. I've never seen that before, I don't think. Um, yeah. Using a it graphic is. like that. Um, yeah. These these little touches that that did feel kind of weirdly B movie ish and yeah absolutely funny almost uh, but yeah it's just uh, you know the 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 movie has now put glasses on you Sean on well on your glasses and uh, so now you can see a little more clearly well yeah I think that's the implication but yeah absolutely we agree with you as far as it feels like a a B movie stylistic choice you know, put upon this thing this you really just had a, a massive debate about the the uh, inherent value of the death penalty. Well, and it makes me wonder if, well, I, I guess it was a, a well-received movie anyway. It kind of makes me wonder if it was, it's, it's, it's a, a, an important movie dressed up like a B movie. Yeah. One of those movies where, yeah, like, like the marketing of it kind of got in the way of it. But, but I mean, I guess it did fine. Like it got nominated for a bunch of stuff and I don't know, you know, because I kind of wonder if that's the case, if it wasn't to its detriment a little bit, because to me, it still feels like it's just a weird mix of things on the whole. It is. Whereas, you know, in this era, there's no problem marketing a two hour drama, like just straightforward drama um, or dark drama. You know, I kind of feel like they could have just let it be that thing. And so I don't know. It's just it's an odd bird. It, It really kind of is. But 
Is it compelling? I am completely compulsed by this movie. Yeah, I think it's a thumbs up. Anything else you want to add about compulsion? The main thing I want to bring up is that there's there's one shot in it that I just loved, and it's maybe it's the showiest shot of the whole movie. But which was they're, that? They're in the uh, they're in the uh, whatever the hotel room I think with uh, with the lawyers and the the team, uh, the 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 prosecutor right talking to Judd, and then you get this shot of the window and this lamp, and the glasses are laying on the table. Sun goes down, everything gets really dark. Somebody comes over, turns on the lamp, and then you see a reflection of. Judd in one of the lenses, and then you see E.G. Marshall walk in to the other lens. And I was just like, man, what a what a neat little shot you guys pulled off there. Gosh, I don't even remember that. I'll have to go watch. Maybe I was taking a note and missed it or something. Maybe. Um, maybe you were snoring. But I will also say, speaking of Gavin McLeod, he was on the team of lawyers. So from 45 okay. minutes in through the rest of the movie, he was like in almost every scene. Wow. But yeah, he's just like, it doesn't look like him at all. <laughs> Except that he's bald. That's the only thing that makes it look like him at all. He's it's, not wearing a white really captain funny. suitor. <laughs> and he was wearing, yes. And he kept saying, ahoy, at yeah. the end of every line. It's an odd That's move you knew. for a murder trial, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about you, man? It is one that I feel like w- I would have a very, or potentially could have a very different reaction seeing it again. Um, sure. Because, like, yeah, because of the things we're talking about, like the discrepancies between halves and knowing that we're not going to see the murder and we're not going to see like the breadcrumbs necessarily that lead us to these two guys. And also just like rewatching, yeah, that Ruth character and, and every little nuance that, that she brings to this thing uh, from a story standpoint. I'd be curious to see kind of how it would play um, as a rewatch. Yeah, me too. I would, and I wouldn't mind seeing a better version. 100%. Yeah. yeah. I, I will point you to the YouTube thing to check it out. But, I, you know, if you've got a couple bucks to spend on a rental fee, uh, go for it that way, I'd say. Because right yeah, it wasn't the best experience. Anyway, that's it. Thanks for joining us. Um, we got a fun one coming up next week. We're going to talk about a movie called Skidoo. We'll get to that with a tee-up. Uh, and then we're going to be visited by uh, a special guest to talk about the movie in detail. So stick around for April. More good things to come. Craig, your final word, sir. Uh, 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 we're going to end this podcast, Sean, because that's, because I feel like doing it. Is that right? Damn well do. Just because I damn well feel like doing it. There you go. I dig it. All right, y'all. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.